Hi, everybody. This is Charlie Guarino. Welcome back to Tech Talk. I am thrilled to have as a guest today, Jesse Gorzinski, who is the business architect of open source on IBMI. Or I should really say Lord Jesse Gorzinski. Jesse, welcome to the <laughs> welcome to our podcast. Absolutely, Charlie. Thank you for having me on today. Great. Um, I'm so happy that you're here today, Jesse. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. The first thing that I said, which really popped out on me, is when I, I've seen your title recently, and the word Lord has been added to that. And I, it, it's a curious, curious talking point, and I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Where did, what's the origin of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I am now technically a Lord of Ireland. Um, my wife and I like to like to travel a lot, of course, when when traveling used to be a thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, one of the places that we recently traveled to was Ireland. I went over there for the uh, NodeConf conference over in Kilkenny, Ireland. And, um, you know, Ireland was one of those destinations that really spoke to us in terms of, uh, you know, the beauty of the landscape, the the beauty of, you know, the, the people and their personality and their culture. And, and we really liked Ireland as, as we do a lot of the destinations that we go to. And, um, you know, so that kind of stuck with us. And so when I saw the opportunity for a, a Groupon roll across my, my ad feed on whatever platform I was on, I, I saw a Groupon that said, hey, you can become a Lord of Ireland for, uh, you know, some trivial amount, it was $12 or something along those lines. And so, so I leapt at that. Um, so my wife and I were now uh, official landowners, we jointly own a small plot of land in the county Kerry, Ireland. So um, not only are we uh, officially Lord and Lady of Ireland, but we also have a place that we need to visit the next time we head over to that island. It, it is a legitimate piece of property. I could, I could go it's, there you could go there. Yes, it has a nice view. They they have some. There's some picnic tables set up. You can look over a nice green valley and a nice uh, nice lake and and take in the take in the scenery. Wow. And yeah. I, I, maybe I will as long as I'm not going to be greeted by people saying "Get off my lawn." That would be. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll I'll give you the GPS coordinates and uh, you can drive over there next time you're in Ireland and well, check out the land that we that we own along with probably many thousands of other people great well for 12 <laughs> bucks i mean it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it sounds like a steal so well great and i, I look forward to going there i'll even send you a photo of me uh, <laughs> i'll send you a selfie <laughs> there you go <laughs> okay great <laughs> well do, so every time i see you from now on do i have to refer to you as lord jesse or just jesse no, is fine just just call me jesse okay then i no. will thanks <laughs> yeah but hasn't hasn't quite gotten to my head yet okay great. <laughs> i reserve the right to change my mind <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's great so the real reason why I wanted to talk to you today, Jesse, is because, you know, you and I, we, we talked from time to time and we were talking about um, this project called Apache Camel. And I know it's something right now that you really have a true, genuine and deep interest in. And you've been promoting this um, on many on many of the social media platforms. I've been seeing articles about it or certainly tweets about it. So tell, just what is Apache Camel? I mean, and, and why is it relevant to me as an IBMI developer, or even RPG, or in, in, in any capacity? What, what is Apache Camel? What is it? Why do I want to give me all the give me the why, the what, the how, all those things? Yeah, I'll I'll try to give you a, a quick little what is it and why you care, which is, you know, it's an enterprise integration framework, and 
that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to anybody uh, by itself. But Apache Camel, they call themselves the Swiss knife of integration. And what it really allows you to do is integrate IBMI, regardless of what language you're using, if you're using COBOL or RPG or PHP, pick your language, uh, but it allows you to integrate IBMI with pretty much anything else, right? There's a huge list of Apache Camel components that provide these integration endpoints, if you will. And so that means it allows you to relatively easy hook up IBMI and integrate your solution with things like IoT, um, if you want to do enterprise messaging solutions that are open source like Kafka and ActiveMQ, um, social media stuff like Twitter and Slack. It, it does, you know, it knows how to talk to SFTP sites. It knows how to send email. It knows how to integrate directly with the database, right? So you can uh, perform transactions on the database. You can actually be hooked into the database to trigger events when database activity occurs, right? So, so being able to integrate with IBMI and also be able to integrate with uh, a countless number of other technologies is really important because uh, we find that a lot of IBMI shops is they are looking at adopting open source for one reason or another. Uh, a common use case is that they need to integrate IBMI with some type of external technology, right? Um, whether that's email, whether that's social media, whether that's IoT, whether that's quantum or blockchain. Um, and that's what, that's what Apache Camel does is it provides you this ability to integrate pretty much anything with anything. And I sound a little bit like a used car salesman without a demo sometimes, but it, it really is uh, worth checking out. We do have samples available as well that show you with just a few lines of code, how you can integrate uh, you know, with something like IoT devices and IBMI message queues or data queues or, or with the database. Well, and, if you subscribe to the theory or to the, the notion that the, you know, the data is you know, one of the, the most important assets of your, of your company, and now if I can capture all those, easily capture those changes, quite literally, the, the world is my oyster of what I can do with that information once the database changes occur. So that, that, that's, as you said, IoT or, and then this, can that go, can that go uh, both directions and meaning that an IoT event can trigger something and I can add something to my database via Camel? Yeah, ab absolutely. And it can go both directions. So you can consume IoT data with Camel or you can control IoT devices with Camel and you can invoke those controls with, you know, simple messages on a message queue or interactions from RPG via data queues and program calls, right? Um, so it's, it's very flexible in what you do, but yeah, you can control IOT devices as well as consume data from IOT devices. And, you know, Jesse, any conversation we have, I mean, even IOT in and of itself, that, that can generate an entire days long discussion because that, that's so big. And yet that's just one component of what you can do with Apache Camel, for example, we can do anything, as you mentioned, Twitter earlier, email, I mean, anything. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. And so it really is, you know, the phrase you said is, is right on, uh, <laughs> right, absolutely correct, which is the world is your oyster at this point, once you realize the power that you have in this integration framework, and how little you or how much you can do with just a few lines of camel integration code, right, being able to monitor a remote FTP site and kick off some task to do some backup or to send an email or to query the database and utilize IBMI services. And maybe you want something to happen when your disks get 70% full. Um, you know, maybe you wanna get an email when your disks get 70% full or something. And things like that can all be done with just a few lines of Apache Camel integration code. 
So it, it literally is giving us the capability to to have a this, this is a true paradigm shift here in how we're using how we're writing applications. We're, we're making them smarter and doing so much more functionality than we've than ever before because we have access to information that we didn't have before. Certainly, certainly well beyond the four walls of our organization. Right, exactly, and that's and that's why things like Camel are becoming really, really important because it's the ability to take this information and connect it to the various places it needs to go. Right, if you want to have real-time interaction with something like Slack, right? Maybe you have a customer-facing Slack channel and you want to be able to somehow integrate with that in real time. You can do that with Apache Camel, and and again, the use cases are are infinite at this point. But it's just being able to get the data from and to the right places and get those messages routed to the right points of integration within your solution. So this brings up a bit of a concern or a potential concern anyway. And that is that so today you're talking about Apache Camel and and perhaps I'm it's new to me or maybe even not so new, but it's 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 relatively recently on my radar and I am a little bit concerned because of maybe some past experiences I might've had that Apache Camel is perhaps the flavor of the day today. And this is where we're, we're putting a lot of our effort into, but there's that, that, that little nagging voice I have in my head that, hey, we'll, we'll use this today, but it, it won't be fully supported or it, 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 something bigger and better and shinier might appear tomorrow. So how do I know this is something that's worthwhile investing some resources and be it financial time or anything else? Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, just like any software that you're choosing to implement in your organization, whether it's open source or not, you have to do some level of evaluation to know the credibility and the long-term viability of that software, right? And that, that notion in, its, in and of itself, like I said, that's not specific to open source, right? Whether you're going to a vendor or some proprietary solution or some open source solution, you need to, you need to get a sense for how viable is this? How useful is this? What are the true costs and, and how likely is it to stick around, right? But when it comes to open source, you do just evaluate things a little bit differently. So the recommended metrics that I talk about when I talk about evaluating open source projects and which ones are the ones with sticking power or which ones are the safest to use in your organization really come down to, in my opinion, four things, right? And those four things are vitality of that open source project. So that's thing one, right? Are there continual updates and improvements? Are bug fixes handled quickly? Are security fixes handled quickly? Um, things of that nature. How active is the community around that open source project? How readily available are some of the key maintainers perhaps of that open source project? And that's all part of this, this overall vitality. Uh, because if you look around for any open source project, you can get a sense for whether this project is still very active or whether this project is maybe a little more stabilized and not as active as, as others, right? So you look at that, uh, you look at what I call uh, open source software's dirty little secret, which is corporate backing, right? If you pull back the covers, are there big uh, corporations, are there big companies keeping this software viable, keeping this software afloat, right? Um, and so if you were to look at something like Apache Camel, 
right? Apache Camel is getting new enhancements all the time, new features all the time, very active community around it. Uh, and if you look at the lead maintainers for Apache Camel, uh, a lot of them are Red Hat employees who are paid to do this as part of their job because Red Hat has this vested interest in Apache Camel. Right, but you, you see that quite often in open source projects where you have these really wildly successful open source projects. And if you pull back the covers a little bit, you see that there's real investment happening in those projects from Fortune 500 companies, especially. So if I'm proposing a particular project for my company, I sh this is something I should definitely, I should be armed with this when I'm going to management to discuss this as a potential project to implement into my shop. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you can go to your management and say, listen, we're going to be deploying essentially the same technology that's used by Netflix, for instance, or Microsoft or PayPal, right? Um, and, and look how, how well PayPal scales and how well Netflix scales. It, it, those are the conversations you have to say, okay, we're using the same technologies that they're, they are using. And it also means that those companies have skin in the game and are likely contributing back to that technology as well to keep that technology around. So that, that technology is not going anywhere once it hits this critical velocity where you have large companies using it, right? Um, you know, so once like Apache Kafka, for instance, is used to power a lot of Netflix's streaming service. And I could probably have a separate talk explaining how they do that. But, uh, you know, if you can go to your management and say, hey, listen, we're streaming data around. And your management says, well, gee, how do you know that it's going to be able to handle the workloads that we have? Just say, well, this is the exact same technology that Netflix is using to stream its data, <laughs> right? And, and your management will be like, oh, okay, <laughs> this so you, is safe, right? Right. You mentioned, it's an interesting term, critical velocity. So it, does that mean that if, if, if a project does, does not in fact have critical velocity, that that's something I should not be entertaining then? Because there are people who do hobby, you know, hobby projects out there. Should I not be bringing those on, into the fold? Yeah, you know, I, I think it depends. I think one of the things, if, if, you, if you're taking uh, projects into the fold that don't necessarily have that critical velocity yet, you just need to be prepared to handle that properly in the future if, if activity in the project dies down. Right, that might even mean some level of self-ownership at some point, right? Yeah, but so, that that by itself does does not disqualify it, does it? That exactly, it it absolutely doesn't. And some people even say, you know, they would rather take the risk of an open source project losing community momentum than a proprietary project that loses investment from its governing company. Right. Because if a proprietary project says, well, you know what, we're not enhancing this anymore. We're not going to fix bugs anymore for a proprietary piece of code. That means it's it's end of the line where if an open source project is in the same state where even worst case scenario, the community says, no, we're we don't really have resources to keep this alive. We don't have the backing. We just nobody has the time. Worst case scenario, you still have access to all of the code. You still have the ability just to push that code forward, to customize it for your needs, to, to add new features that you really need, right? That's the worst case scenario with open source is that you still have a way to move forward and you don't end up stuck on technology that's just not supported or not, not able to be used anymore. 
Right. So we talked about who's investing in these projects, the vitality of it, yep. um, foundations. Who- yes. Yeah, so, so it's really common as well for software foundations to be involved with governing these projects or providing resources, whether it's CI build machines or actual developers or advocacy, uh, you know, education modules for the community. And so there's a lot of software foundations that are really good at keeping open source credible and viable and reliable, right? So examples of that would be things like the Eclipse Software Foundation or the ESF or the Apache Software Foundation. And we all know about the Linux Software Foundation. And there's smaller foundations as well, like the the OpenJS Foundation is really doing a lot of great things in the JavaScript ecosystem and the Node ecosystem these days. Um, We have things like the Document Foundation, which is keeping things like LibreOffice, uh, vital and stable and, and a lot of, lot of great things going on there. And so there's, um, if you have a foundation like that, a software foundation that's backing your open source project, that also is a really good indicator, right? So generally anything with Apache in its name has the Apache software project behind it. Anything with Eclipse in its name has the Eclipse software foundation behind it, right? And, Which are all completely credible foundations, obviously. Yeah, a- absolutely. You know, and they usually meet the criteria for a charitable foundation in at least one country. Um, but the key thing is that if there's a foundation that's backing it, there's also people and other companies founding the foundation or funding the foundation, right? Um, and so again, you have this sense that there's other people with skin in the game for this software. You are not a loner in adopting this software. So it's very strategic and safe for you to adopt when you see that indicator. Right. And adopt and, and get continued support, certainly at the same time. Right. E- exactly. And that, and that's really, you know, the S word of support. That's another, that's the fourth of my four metrics. So I'll summarize them in a minute, but um if you have software that companies are willing to provide support for, that's just another key indicator that this software is production ready. It's ready for prime time. Uh, and you, if you opt to do so, and you, you obviously don't have to, but if you opt to do so, uh, you can get support in place from somebody. That's, that's a key attribute as well, right? Just to know that it's, it's reliable and enterprise ready. So if I took your four metrics and I applied them to Apache Camel, for example, every box would certainly be checked, right? I mean, obviously. Yeah, absolutely, right? The, the vitality is there. Like I said, new features all the time. I'm in one, their, their community chat is one of the most active open source community chats that I uh, hang out in. Um, so that's there. There's corporations involved. So specifically Red Hat in their case, they have people who are paid full-time, I believe, to help maintain Apache Camel and other projects. And of course it has the, the backing of the Apache Software Foundation. So that, that box is checked. Um, and then there's a, a page out on Apache Camel's website somewhere where they list, you know, I think probably 12 to 15 different ways that you can actually get commercial support in place for the software as well. So, so in terms of vitality, corporate backing, foundation backing, and the availability of support. It checks all four of those boxes. And, you know, Jesse, I, I think one of the main components of open source projects in general is the community support. And even within, in the context of IBMI, for example, there are community chat channels that we can join for free, in fact, 
and I know you're you're very active in a couple of them. Give me some, which ones, if I'm new to this and I, I want to just start reading some of the previous posts, where, where, where does one go to get better educated on this? So there's a couple places you can go. The first that I'll mention is the IBMI community Slack channel, which is not specifically focused on open source, although there is... It's, it's, I guess, technically a Slack workspace. Um, there is an IBMI open source Slack channel within there, but it really is uh, used by a lot of general IBMI community folks. And there's, I think, a couple hundred IBMI community folks in there. Um, and if you're familiar with Slack, as many people are, it's a very familiar environment for you to go uh, meet people, ask questions, share good stuff, and, and just socialize in general. Um, but probably the best place for IBMI open source folks to hang out is this community chat channel called River, R-Y-V-E-R. -E and that allows you to go uh, hang out with, I think we're at over 600 members out there. Uh, probably one of the most active places to go collaborate with other folks with open source, definitely the most active place uh, for IBMI open source. And there's special forums for uh, Node.js, for PHP, for Java, for Nginx, um, for database stuff, right? And so there's just a lot of activity out there that you should go definitely be a part of. And so anybody who's interested at all in doing open source on IBMI should be part of, of that river channel um, above all else. And if I'm a total newbie here, and if I join River, what kind of posts would I typically see? Will I find code on there? Will I find just questions and answers? Or, or well, I don't even know. What else have you seen on there? Yeah, a, a little bit of everything, right? You have uh, a lot of Q&A happens, right? People will say, how do I do thing X, Y, or Z? And of course, other community members will try to help them out as best they can. Uh, sometimes people come in with issues that they're having. And, uh, you know, we talk through those. Sometimes it's just more high level, like general trends and directions, right? Um, what, you know, how do we see the market going? Where, where do we see the trends with certain technologies, right? So it's, it's a little bit of everything, you know, from very detailed technical discussions all the way to, uh, you know, just people being social and hanging out with each other and, and talking to each other in the general channel, right? So it really is a bit of everything over there. And you should be a part of that if you're interested in open source on I. And of course, there are all the stories, and we, we talked about these in the past also. There are some projects that ultimately do reach end of life, and there are some things that are just die, I suppose. And give me, you know, I, we talked about Ruby, I mean, maybe an example of this, right? Right. And, you know, open source projects, again, it's, it's really hard for an open source project to truly die, right? So people talk about the death of an open source project. That is, is very extremely rare, right? What generally happens is, is they might lose buzz, right? They might start to lose some traction uh, in adoption rates. So for instance, if you're a programming language like Ruby, you might see some of the, um, you know, some of the industry analysis say, okay, fewer people are using Ruby this year than last year and so on, right? Um, and Ruby itself kind of peaked in, I would think like the 2006 to 2009 timeframe was when it had its best heyday. Right. Um, but what's interesting about Ruby, in my opinion, is the vitality is there. Right. Um, in, in December. So just a few months ago, they came out with version 3.x of Ruby and 
they had you know really great performance enhancements they added a jit that's going to like 3x the performance throughput of things and all kinds of great uh, language enhancements as well so with ruby the technology itself is great right and the and the language i i don't particularly dislike the language the language is very elegant very object oriented um, and so the technology is there the vitality is there but uh, as far as I can tell, I, I don't see any evidence of a big, you know, IBM or a Google or a Microsoft or a Netflix behind Ruby helping with skin in the game to make sure that it's a top contender in the language market, right? I didn't see that. I don't think that it's part of any software foundation, uh, definitely not any of the larger software foundations. And so it, it, it checks that vitality box, but it, it kind of fails on some of those other boxes that I talked about earlier. Um, and so it's not dying, it's not dead, but it's definitely on a decline. And to be and, sure, there are shops obviously still using it in, in production and using it quite well, in fact. Yep, absolutely. Right. Yep, and and we actually have you know on, in the Ruby case we even have some some Ruby builds available with Ruby three uh, for IBM I clients, right? Um, but so it's not dead. It's just the general trend is that it it kind of fades out of what people talk about, right? Uh, and that's generally what happens to open source projects. It's very rare for them to actually die. They just get replaced with other things. Other technologies might grab their momentum and build upon it, right? But but they they very rarely actually die. Yeah, but honestly, I don't think that that, that model is unique to or singular to open source either. I mean, so many of the technologies and other platforms follow that same pattern, that same cycle. Yeah, exactly, you're spot on. Because um, none of that is, like you say, none of that is unique to open source, right? Happens all the time with other products. Sure, what other... Um... So you mentioned you mentioned River, which again this is R Y V E R, not River. Uh, you also we talked about something called Zulip, Zulip, Zulip. Am I saying it correctly? Zulip, like, yeah, like Zulip. Tulip with a Z. Tulip with a Z. Yeah. So so Zulip is is a good example of one of the many open source communities that you can join that uh, you know is not IBM I specific, right? It, it, but it is. Uh, very unique in that it gives you uh, really great access to the people who are keeping the code alive, people who are maintaining the code. So Zulip is the platform, for instance, that Apache Camel uses. So the Apache Camel community has a Zulip chat and there's a mobile uh, mobile app that I have on my phone. There's a web interface as well. Uh, people may have never heard of Zulip, but if you go, go join the Zulip chat, you will see very active conversation happening every single day. Um, and that's important to understand is as an IBMI open source developer, you can join all of these other communities and, and engage in these communities and also get really unique access to the people who are actually writing the, the core of the code and the active maintainers of the project, right? So if you were to join the Apache Camel Zulip chat, uh, you can ask a question and the people who wrote a lot of the camel components that you're using might be there to immediately answer your questions. It's a really unique uh, value add that you get with open source and that some of these communities provide this really direct conduit to uh, the definitive experts on the technology. And a very strategic part of the whole community as well. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Exactly. 
And there's, you know, there's, there's all kinds of community chats for that, for these various projects. I hang out in, you know, the OpenJ9 Slack channels, the OpenJS Foundation has some, some good community presence as well. Uh, the Loopback API framework, the Qiskit community, which is the quantum computing frameworks for Python, all of those communities just have tons of people in them. They're very active and you can go join and, and learn a lot of stuff and, and grow yourself as a professional by joining these open source communities. So what are your final thoughts, Jesse? If somebody's just now starting to dip their toe into this, what, what's your best advice? I mean, would, would it be join a community first or just download one of the projects and start using it or you know, a combination of all of those? Yeah, I would say uh, there's two pieces of advice, right? The first piece of advice is just do it, right? Because the biggest roadblock is often a little bit of fear and uncertainty and you don't know if you're using the right technology or you don't know if you're using the technology in the right, correct way, right? But just do it. Even if you're doing it wrong the first time, just do it. You're going to learn a lot. And the other piece of advice is perhaps even more important. Just know that you're never alone in doing stuff with open source technology. There's always a community. There's always somewhere to go find some somebody and don't be shy, right? Reach out, say hello to people, meet some people and, uh, you know, make some friends, but also, again, grow yourself as a developer or a professional and uh, just just network and, and learn a lot of cool stuff. And, and you're never alone on your journey. Sounds like good life advice also. Yeah, true, <laughs> true. <laughs> Jesse, what can I say? It's, it's always such a real treat to, to chat with you. I want to thank you so much for your time today and for being a guest on Tech Talk. Thank you very, very much. Really a pleasure. So, I, and, and, and the information that you bring is just really so always so timely and relevant. And I'm sure a lot of people will, will find this very helpful. And don't be surprised if you get a lot more members coming to River asking questions, which is a good thing, right? That'd be amazing. Yeah, please come join. Right. All right. So, Thank you, Jesse. This is Charlie Guarino, as I said. I will be back next month with another, po with another podcast. In the meantime, make sure you check out the other content on Tech Channel. They have a, a wealth of information, newsletters, webinars, eBooks, uh, things like that. And it's worth your time. And don't forget to join the subscription page. Thanks very much for joining us. And until next month, we'll see you. We'll, we'll we will be in touch, right? <laughs> we'll be in touch. <laughs> Thanks again. Bye now, everybody.